What does the future of business look like? Might it be a world of more thoughtful consumers? More wholesome suppliers? Will tomorrow be better than today? Well, my guest this week, Paul Rice, the founder of Fair Trade USA, is one of those optimists who will convey to you not merely hope, but I think will give you confidence that things will get better through what he's already seeing and what he's been doing in this world now for the last 20 years and probably the next 20 and counting. Get ready to make a new friend, Paul Rice, on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop, but here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same, but if rates go down, your rate also drops. So, Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Well, in the face of a continued stock market sell-off, which is something we've gotten used to here at The Motley Fool over the last 25 years and counting of our business. And if you're an investor who's even been around for 10 years, you know that the market can be quite bad sometimes. I haven't had a lot of fun checking my stocks for the last few weeks, but as I said, I'm used to that. And if you're not already, I hope you will get used to it, because those of us who make a lifetime commitment to investing need to realize that one year in three, we don't have a great year. The good news is... The other two years out of three, the math really works for us here, do tend to give us good years. And overall, I don't think there's any other place I want my money than the U.S. stock market over the long term. Well, anyway, in the face of some of those near-term losses and the sadness of seeing a few 52-week lows pop up when we were used to seeing 52-week highs, I'm really happy to introduce to you Paul Rice, the founder of Fair Trade USA. I'll do a little introduction as I welcome him on, so I won't say anything more about him for now. I'll just say, I'm so glad you found us this week, and I hope you find this conversation with Paul as enlightening, as promising, and as fun as I did. Paul Rice is founder, president, and CEO of Fair Trade USA, the internationally acclaimed social enterprise and leading certifier of fair trade products in North America. He launched the award-winning nonprofit organization in 1998. So I'm marking this as 20 years that we're having Paul on Rule Breaker Investing after spending 11 years organizing farmers in the highlands of Nicaragua. 20 years later, fair trade has grown into a widely known and increasingly mainstream consumer trend that's rapidly approaching an inflection point. In 2016, consumer recognition of the fair trade certified label reached 67% and US retail sales of fair trade products grew to an estimated $6 billion. Well, Paul and his team have enlisted the support of over 1,300 companies, including market leaders and some pretty good Motley Fool stock picks like Starbucks, PepsiCo, Whole Foods, Costco, Walmart, to name a few. Paul, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Oh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really so delighted. You know, I got to hear you speak in person at the Conscious Capitalism Summit in October of this year, so just a month or so ago, and I thought, I sure hope Paul will join me on Rule Breaker Investing so I can have him share his story with all of our Motley Fool listeners. I want to start by asking you, Paul, 
Well, in a sense, I want to ask you, what kind of life have you led that would lead to fair trade? So, before I ask where the idea came from, where did the man who had the idea come from? <laughs> well, I, um, I grew up listening to stories from my mama talking about life on the farm. That's kind of where it began. And so, even though I wasn't a farm boy myself, I grew up hearing those stories. Uh, my mom's family uh, came out of Oklahoma. They lost their farm during the Great Depression. And I just grew up with a keen sense of how hard it is to be a farmer and to make ends meet and to be successful. And I, I've always felt a deep sympathy for the folks that grow our food. And so um, uh, right out of college, at the tender age of 22, I decided that I wanted to go off and work with farmers and see if I could help um, small family farmers uh, on a journey out of poverty. So I went to Nicaragua, and I thought I would stay for a year or two. I ended up staying for 11 years. Mm. And, um, and that, that was my life, working you know, way out in the, in the hinterlands, um, you know, blue jeans, cowboy boots, uh, and, a, and, a, and a dirt bike, riding up into, into villages and helping farmers organize co-ops. Because what I learned early on was that if you only have one acre of land, you're kind of locked into a cycle of poverty. But if you stand shoulder to shoulder with your neighbors and create economies of scale and add value and process your harvest and sell a more value-added product, you can actually create a new story for yourself as a, as a small farmer around the world. And that was inspiring to me. And that's why I ended up staying so long. Mm. Well, And when I saw you talking at the Conscious Capitalism Summit in October, Paul, um, Whole Foods CEO John Mackey, a friend of yours, friend of mine, introduced you as one of the most interesting men in the world, which I certainly agree with. He's also had, he also had some fun with you. I think he was describing you back in the day, maybe when he first met you as did he say the word Marxist or something like that? But I, what are your yeah? So he's always giving me grief for uh, for having chosen Nicaragua as the place I wanted to go. But you know, frankly, I just wanted to be in a place where my time and effort would make a difference. And Nicaragua is one of the the poorest countries in the hemisphere. And, um, you know, if ever there were a place that needed our support, it, it, that's it. And, and so I went, you know, thinking I would stay for a year or two, and uh, I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the people. Uh, I fell in love with my um, wife. I got married, married a local gal, had a kid there, and uh, I became Pablo. And, uh, and I ended up, and this leads to the answer to your fair trade question, mm -hmm. I ended up starting to feel that top-down uh, aid as an approach to poverty just wasn't really very effective. I saw lots of well-intentioned aid dollars um, go to projects that ultimately didn't really work very well, certainly didn't help farmers learn how to navigate the market. So much of international aid focuses on teaching farmers how to boost their yields, how to grow more corn on an acre of land, mm -hmm. uh, if it were, as it were. Uh, and, and not really helping them figure out how to market, how to add value, how to be successful business people. So in 1990, after seven years there, um, I heard about fair trade and ended up starting the first fair trade coffee co-op in Nicaragua. I ran it for four years. It was an amazing journey. And, you know, we ended up creating an engine of economic growth that was owned by the farmers that took some of the world's best coffee and, uh, and processed it and exported direct, jumping over the middlemen, going direct to international buyers, mm -hmm. and bringing back uh, over a dollar a pound to our farmers at a time when the local market price was 10 cents a pound. So we're talking about a 10x increase in income for these farmers 
simply by connecting them more directly to the market and helping them grow higher quality product. And so for me, that was transformational, and it led me to believe that market linkage and fair trade and things like it are probably the most sustainable, scalable way that we can uh, help the poor on a journey out of poverty and at the same time create value for business and for consumers. And we're definitely going to get to that because I think at least my initial when I first heard about fair trade I'll share what I thought of it in a sec but you're going to disabuse me the old me of that as you did when I heard you speak a month ago and and it's really persuasive to me. So let me just say Paul when I first heard about fair trade I want to say it was maybe 15 years ago and I'm going to Starbucks and I hear you know I could buy coffee from Starbucks or I could buy fair trade coffee which I'm just going to make up was like a buck more. And and I and I knew that I'm paying more because it's going to go to the farmer that made that coffee. But the the undergrad, please note, not even masters or PhD, the undergrad econ, you know, double major in me was thinking that can't work. We we can't you can't sustainably pay people more than the value of what the market says that they're doing. Supply and demand, these powerful forces, it can't possibly work. So at the time I was just thinking, I don't really see how that could work. But to start half answering the question for you, because I know you already know the whole answer, but you were saying when I first heard you a month ago, you're like, hey, you know, when foreign aid comes in, it can come in one of three ways to the poor people of the world. Through their government, that often doesn't ever reach them, and there are a lot of corrupt governments. Not a great answer. That's number one. Number two, you just said it, could go to NGOs or others, often well-meaning on the ground, but they may not be making the best decisions, and it's kind of a paternalistic way, because they're kind of making the calls for who gets the money and how. And then you said the third person is the farmer, the craftsman directly, the person. And and so then my eyes opened, and I started seeing, ah, this is what Paul's been doing so successfully for 20 years now. We have been overpaying people. We have been breaking supply and demand a little bit, but they're getting the money directly, and it's much more helpful. And really, I feel better about it. It's more organic. It feels good to me as a consumer. That's exactly right. You know, the the, um, the international coffee supply chain, just to take that one commodity, um, uh, because it's illustrative, mm-hmm. um, it, it is so heavily intermediated. There's so many middlemen in the chain. And um, as farmers here in the United States discovered 100 years ago when they started, you know, grain co-ops in the Midwest, uh, or you've got sun-kissed oranges uh, down in Florida and ocean spray cranberries up in New England, all of these are farmer-owned co-ops. What, what farmers have discovered is that if you get organized and form uh, associative businesses that create economies of scale, you have the resources and the volume to process your harvest and not sell raw commodity, you know, in the local market, but rather to sell a value-added product and, and ideally sell it uh, direct to national or, or international markets. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that more direct trade model is, I think, the, the the wave of the future. Not only from the farmer perspective, but also because companies, from Whole Foods to Walmart and everyone in between, companies are increasingly looking for supply chain transparency and a more direct connection back to the original producers. So I think there's an, a huge opportunity on both sides of the global market, if you will, for a more transparent and traceable and direct connection. And Paul, let's get into the model a little bit here. Let's get a little wonkish. Um, so what exactly is the fair trade model? How does it work? Let's pretend I'm the proverbial alien just showing up on the planet, hearing about this for the first time from the man who got it started. Okay. 
Uh, well, and you are a bit of an alien, as we know, David, so um, it's actually uh, a good analogy. It's easy. It's easy. <laughs> so, um, you know, kind of the headline is fair trade is all about uh, high-quality products that improve lives and protect the environment. That's kind of the headline. That's what fair trade seeks to do. It seeks to bring high-quality products to market that improve people's lives and protect the environment. Mm-hmm. Now, how does it work? Well, there's a fair trade standard, you know, an, an actual code of over 300 compliance criteria that uh, address labor uh, issues and social issues and environmental stewardship, right? So you know the organic standard. To get organic certified, a farmer has to comply with that long list of, of criteria. Fair trade is the same way. Okay. To, to get fair trade certified, a farm or a factory, because parenthetically we're now certifying manufactured goods as well, uh, a farm or a factory has to meet that standard, and then they get independently audited every year. And if they pass the audit, then they get certified. Their products are certified, and that makes them eligible to, t- to sell to any fair trade buyer uh, in the world. Now, right now we're working in 70 countries, mostly in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So our focus has been really on those poor countries that produce our bananas, our cocoa, our chocolate, uh, uh, our coffee, our tea, our rice, these, these big commodities that we um, uh, purchase as a country and that come from some of the poorest countries in the world. And, and, and the philosophy is if we can help them become more sustainable and responsible growers, and then if we as a market can pay them a little bit more for doing that, that helps them on a journey out of poverty that doesn't make them dependent on foreign aid. And that's kind of the one of the early slogans of fair trade was trade, not aid. And, and, and that's kind of the ethos uh, of our movement. So we have now... 1,300 partner companies here in the United States that are working with us and buying fair trade products. And uh, those companies, you know, uh, cross all kinds of product categories from coffee and tea to chocolate and fresh produce. And now we're in fish and we're in manufactured goods. So we're working with Walmart and Whole Foods and Kroger and Costco and Safeway. And we're working with Starbucks and PepsiCo and Ben and & Jerry's and Honest Tea and, and on and on, right, in all these product categories. And, and, and here's kind of a core element of fair trade. Each one of these companies agrees to pay a little bit more back to the farmer for complying with the fair trade standard. And this is a fundamental departure from the codes of conduct that many companies have implemented in, in the last 20 years mm. in, a, in an effort to, you know, kind of manage reputational risk, right? Because there's child labor out there, there's slavery out there, factories collapse, workers get crushed. Like, there are bad practices in the global supply chain. And companies, I think in good faith for the most part, have said, okay, let's implement a code of conduct to, you know, and and ask our suppliers, the farms and factories that we source from, to meet that code of conduct in order to stay part of our business. But here's 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 the rub. Most companies say to their suppliers, comply with our code of conduct, and whatever costs associated with that are your problem. Hmm. Right? So they ask them to perform at a high social and environmental level, but then they beat up on them on price. And that's just um, a fundamentally a, a, a prescription for failure. And Bad for, friction, yeah. For, for double books and for cheating and scamming, and, you know, we've all heard the stories. So here's what's different about fair trade. The standard is a high standard for responsibility and sustainability, 
but it, it's, we sweeten the pot by asking Walmart or Whole Foods or whoever to pay a little bit more for those bananas or that coffee so that the farmer feels like it's a, a strong value proposition for her. And that's, I think, what's driving the success of our model because we're, we're moving away from the zero-sum uh, mentality of the past and saying, you know, the market will bear a 1% or a 2% markup on, on, on coffee or on bananas or on, or on tea in order to ensure that the farmers can put food on the table and keep their kids in school and invest in quality and meet this high standard. And Paul, can you paint the picture a little bit? Because you've seen it, Nicaragua and no doubt other places since then. What does it look like from the farmers and the craftsmen's and when they get um, if it's fair to say, overpaid or generously supported by their buyers, what are their lives? How do their lives transform? Well, I wouldn't say just a, just a clarification. I wouldn't say they're overpaid because these premiums that they're getting are again typically one, two, three percent over what they would normally get. That doesn't sound but like much. I agree. Wow, it, it's it's not much. It's it's certainly not much of a, a, a markup for the for the buyers up here and for consumers. What it means, though, for those families is an extraordinary opportunity to improve their lives and to invest in their communities. So this was, you know, my, my 11 years in Nicaragua, four years of those were leave, leading a fair trade co-op. So I got to live this firsthand, right? For me, it's, it's, it's very personal. I still stay in touch with many of the families that I started working with in the late 80s and early 90s. And the difference is incredible in their lives. I mean, we're talking about farmers who only have one or two acres of land. You know, so they are third or fourth generation coffee farmers, but they're locked in a cycle of poverty. And then they join a co-op, they, they plug into fair trade, they work their asses off to produce high-quality product and to meet this high bar of sustainability, and they end up getting a little more money back. And that money then gets plowed into their families, their education, their housing. Um, you know, in Nicaragua, we were digging wells and bringing clean drinking water into our villages mm-hmm. for the first time, thanks to this fair trade premium. We created a scholarship fund that helped kids stay in school and go on to high school and on to college, again, thanks to the fair trade fund. We also invested on the productive side. So many of our farmers ended up investing in training and infrastructure to improve the quality, right, so that there's a so that it truly is a fair trade, if you will, for us, the consumer. We want fair trade to be not just something that helps farmers, but also that tastes great and that we as consumers feel like, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing coffee. And bonus, <laughs> it helped farmers, right? Yep. So, you know, for me, it, it is that, that journey of progress and the journey of hope, David, because the secret sauce in, in fair trade is that you or I, as consumers, we get to help the farmers by buying these products, but we don't get to tell them how to spend the money. They decide that themselves. And so unlike government or you know, well-intentioned uh, international charities who kind of say, okay, well, we're going to drop a school into your community, or we're going to dig a well for you, or whatever, right? the farmers get this money every year, and then they have to meet and debate and decide democratically, are we going to prioritize clean water this year? Are we going to prioritize education? And that process mm. of debating and deciding is in and of itself, uh, you know, at the heart of fair trade, it's what we call empowerment. It's helping people learn how to be stewards of their own community development. And that, as you can imagine, 
creates this whole ripple effect. Often we're working in societies that don't have a strong democratic tradition. And what fair trade does is it creates democratic process at the community mm-hmm. level. We get people talking to each other, kind of like the PTA equivalent here in, or, or Block Watch. I mean, we have some models for that in the U.S., mm-hmm. but, you know, if, if for, for a country like, uh, like Nicaragua or Ethiopia uh, or, or, or any country where there's not a strong democratic tradition, to create a, a platform where, where farmers can come together and talk about their priorities, their development priorities, health and education and water and so on, it's, it's truly remarkable. It creates um, a, a much more vibrant and engaged community that then is able to negotiate with government and able to negotiate with the powers that be and, and, and really become authors and, and architects of their own future. It's, it's incredibly inspiring to me. And it, it's all made possible. It's all made possible thanks to you and me and these daily choices that we make. Voting with our dollars, if you will, for a better world, choosing a fair trade cup of coffee or a T-shirt or banana. And that's what's so extraordinary about it, realizing that fair trade isn't just about empowering farmers. It's about empowering you and me, that you and I can make uh, a huge difference in the world with something as simple as a cup of coffee. And that's a nice shift in the conversation, and in fact, where I wanted to head next because, well, let me just say briefly, here at The Motley Fool, we've always told people that how you and I spend our dollars and invest our dollars truly does shape the future of the world. So, if we buy from this vendor, not that one, this one does better, that one does worse in relative terms. And when we invest our dollars as investors and we put that capital into a company, yeah, sure enough, that company with a higher share price can raise more money or do more things. And if we shun a bad company with not investing in their shares, sure enough, they're not going to do so well, usually. Uh, and, and I think principle and history will bear those things out. So, you introduced a phrase at the Conscious Capitalism Summit, which I thought is very persuasive. It's one of those things where I kind of had already intuited it, always agreed with it, but I didn't have the phrase for it, Paul. So, that's where we're headed to conscious consumerism. So, you described... Uh, something a wave that we can already see, but it's about to get bigger. And what do you mean by conscious consumerism? Well, you know, it, it um, it's not a new concept. Uh, it's been around for a while. I think what is new is that it, it is rapidly becoming more the norm than the exception. And I think conscious consumerism, kind of at the highest level, is simply um, uh, choosing products that are more consistent with our values. And that's a broad definition, but you know, we see consumers increasingly concerned about things like the environment, but they don't know what to do. They're concerned about global poverty, but they don't know what to do. Uh, they're concerned about health and wellness. Uh, and, and, and there, there's probably a more immediate uh, set of products and companies uh, to engage um, you know, in order to meet that. But suffice to say, conscious consumerism is the act of buying products that are consistent with our social and environmental values as well as consistent with you know kind of the functional attributes of the product itself and and so that spans the health and wellness category it includes um, shoppers of organic products uh, it includes um, you know purchasing products that are more environmentally sustainable or more socially responsible uh, and and so the phenomenon of conscious consumerism is um, you know, depending on whose research you believe, now uh, a part of anywhere from 20 to 50 percent of American consumers' behavior. Not all the time, right? 
So uh, for most of it, it's still uh, an occasional, uh, you know, on an occasional basis that we're choosing an organic product or we're, or we're um, you know, choosing a fair trade product. Mm-hmm. But what's really interesting is, and, and what suggests that this is a macro trend, is the growth. Yeah, the, the growth of the, uh, of the category, the growth of these products themselves, which are clearly uh, responding to consumer demand or, or tapping into it. And, and, and millennials, as you might guess, and Gen Z consumers as well, um, both index super high in this regard in terms of their expectations of, uh, of companies, uh, social and environmental practices, and their expectations around the products that they consume. And, um, you know, I, I have a 19-year-old daughter, um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of this phenomenon that, you know, her generation really goes out of their way to look for products that, um, that are socially responsible, that, that are consistent with their values. So that's, that's how we think about conscious consumerism. And, you know, I think regardless of where you land on, on, on how big or, 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 or deep it is today, if you, we look at the last 10, 20 years, the trajectory of growth, uh, it's easy to imagine where we'll be 10, 20 years from now. And, you know, what I hear executives uh, all over the U.S. economy and in the, in the products that we work in, what I hear them say is they're gearing up for a day in the not-too-distant future when uh, conscious consumerism is kind of the new normal and, 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 and table stakes for companies that want to survive, in, certainly in the CPG space. And it makes a lot of sense to me, and it's in a way, it's kind of like buying the brand that you know and love. And so, I think all of us can relate to that over the course of our adult lives, selecting certain brands. But this involves more rigor and more intention than I think a lot of us grew up with. Um, what What's interesting to me, Paul, when you talk about millennials or Generation Z, and I have to admit, I'm not even sure quite of the... Is, is, is there a difference now? Is there, are we, we're already past millennials now. Generation Z is next. Yeah, and then we're out of the letters, so there will be no no more generations that have letters, <laughs> right. unless we're going to go AA. <laughs> All right, so so for the millennials and for Generation Z, it's persuasive to me that it will only be increasingly important, and and that's exciting. One other trend, though, I'm interested in hearing how you think about this. One other trend I'm sometimes hearing is that millennials and Generation Z are sort of opting out of the idea of the stock market or starting to favor socialism over capitalism. I think in some ways this has been true of every youthful generation probably. We go back and it's the, there's that idealism when before you've ever paid taxes to anybody or <laughs> those kinds of there's a dynamic where of course there's a lot of hope and 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 idealism in youth. But I don't know whether we're actually seeing more than that right now and what is your take on that new generation and socialism versus capitalism? I think those um, those terms often get in the way. Uh, you know, if I if I think about the conversations I've had with my daughter, my 19 year old daughter, and, mm-hmm. and and her friends, that they're not really talking about socialism versus capitalism, but what they are talking about is a society and economy and corporate behavior that is um, compassionate and engaged with social and environmental issues. And so my interpretation is they're not voting for socialism. They're not hoping for socialism. They're hoping for uh, a more compassionate capitalism, uh, a conscious capitalism, capitalism that uh, doesn't treat social and environmental issues as externalities, but rather that 
embraces the 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 notion that business has a role to play in fixing the planet mm. and 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 in serving the planet business with purpose and and what i love about that is that whether it's my 19 year old daughter or uh my friend john mackey the founder and ceo of whole foods or uh doug mcmillan the ceo of walmart um you know from from young consumers to um to veteran industry leaders, I see a common conversation emerging hmm. around the responsibility of business to do good in the world. And, and more importantly, the conversation is not, you know, like, how do we kind of, uh, you know, screw the planet six days a week and then give back philanthropically on Sunday. That's mm. not the conversation. The conversation is, how can we bake sustainability and responsibility into our products, into our business, into how we do business, and to kind of generate new models of business that create shared value, that create value for not only shareholders, but also for stakeholders, right? For suppliers, for employees, uh, for the supply chain, for the environment, mm. and so on. Love it. And so inspiring and, and so true. I really, I really love how you phrase that. Paul, let's talk a little bit about um, just slight. Let's talk about a half step outside of fair trade in your model. And I'm thinking about things like microcredit. Whether we're talking about Grameen and Muhammad Yunus, who kind of won a Nobel Peace Prize in part because of his championing of microcredit, or something like the Heifer Project, where it's not exactly credit; it's more that you're helping a farmer be able to buy an animal, and a single animal can make a huge difference in the life of a family. How do you view fair trade squaring with or against microcredit? Is that a competitor? Does somebody have a better model? Is it all part of a better world? Oh, it's definitely all part of a better world. And, um, you know, access to capital and access to markets are um, kind of hand-in-glove, both essential parts of um, uh, alleviating poverty in communities around the world, right? I mean, I've been working with farmers now for more than 30 years, and farmers consistently tell me that they actually uh, are are, um, looking for three um, pillars, if you will, of of sustainable economic development. One is access to capital, Mm -hmm. another is access to markets, and the third one is access to technology and training and business savvy, right? What, you know, what, what historically has been called technical assistance Mm -hmm. in, in kind of the international development field. And so, you know, I see, um, um, the work of, of, of microcredit and, and that whole movement and uh and and you know the credit that's provided to small and medium enterprises uh as absolutely complementary and essential mm. to the success of fair trade and other market based approach approaches that that seek to connect farmers to the market directly uh you know I know Muhammad Yunus he's personally been a big inspiration to me and uh and helped me think about um, uh, fair trade not as the um the necessarily the 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 ultimate solution for all of the world's poverty, but as a model that can be replicated and that others can emulate and do other things mm-hmm. uh, and extend. I mean, I think that was the lesson from Grameen. Grameen is a great model, but it helped inspire a much bigger micro lending movement, globally speaking, that has had such a huge impact. And I think about Fair Trade USA and our work here in the same light. There's so much work going on now 
in what increasingly, David, is being called impact sourcing. Now, we've all heard of impact investing and the notion that, you know, through our investments, we can create triple bottom line results, social and environmental, as well as financial value. Mm -hmm. Impact sourcing is the notion that the way companies source their um, their 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 materials, their 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 commodities, mm-hmm. uh, can have a positive impact and and a value creation uh, for uh, the firm and for the farmers and the workers and the ecosystems um, on the other end of the supply chain. So I, I see fair trade as part of this bigger, broader movement of impact sourcing, yep. and um, and I think it all goes very well with the work that. Um, that uh, the, the micro lending and the technical assistance um, uh, service providers have provided. You mentioned uh, Heifer, Pierre Ferrari, the CEO of Heifer, uh, uh, sat on my board for many years. Uh, he's been a great inspiration to me as well. And Heifer's claim to fame beyond you know helping um, get livestock to farmers mm-hmm. um, has been their training programs, helping farmers learn how to be better business people, mm-hmm. helping them learn how to add value, process products, link to the market. So actually, we've collaborated with Heifer and Oxfam and Lutheran World Relief, Catholic Relief Services, all of those agencies that have boots on the ground and that are actively training farmers. And we see all of you know, that, that broader kind of farmer support ecosystem, if you will, of which the consumer is a part, of which the consumer is a part. We see them all as being a key, ingre- a key ingredient in uh, alleviating poverty. Wonderful. And so, I said I wanted to stay a half-step away from fair trade right now. We just spent it just talking about some of the other not-for-profit solutions out there, real-world solutions doing great stuff, whether it's Grameen, Heifer, many others. And I'm not surprised to hear you tied to each one of them with, in many cases, long-standing personal relationships, which just shows what an outstanding life you've lived thus far, Paul Rice. But let me also stay half a step outside, but go in a different direction. So, on the other side, to the for-profit and commercial world. So, I'm curious how you view a company like Etsy, which today tips the scales, a multi-billion-dollar for-profit company. How do you see them fitting into an ecosystem where they're also trying to provide, you know, Developing world craftsmen with markets and access to markets, as you just mentioned. Yes, absolutely. You know, I um, I think Etsy is in many ways philosophically very uh, closely connected to fair trade, right? Because what what we're both trying to do is create a more direct connection between consumers and uh, and producers uh, around the world Absolutely. between consumers and, and and artisans and using technology to enable that more direct connection and a sustainable livelihood for those artisans fair trade is doing the same thing we're doing it however um, through um, um, a, a service to the industry because from the very beginning we thought okay what's the best way to scale what's the best way to affect uh, and improve the lives of the most number of farmers and workers possible. And, um, you know, what we found was that companies, uh, coffee and banana and, and tea and all kinds of different companies were really looking for a way to make sure that there was no child labor in their supply chain, to make sure that there was no environmental destruction in their mm-hmm. supply chain, to make sure that, 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 that farmers and their families had a decent living so that they could continue to produce high-quality products, right? Because there's a connection between what farmers get for their harvest and their ability then to reinvest in quality and, and deliver that quality uh, in a reliable mm. manner. So what we found was this upsurge of interest in the industry for a service that could make that supply chain more transparent, 
more traceable, and ensure that the, the, the price paid up here for a cup of coffee or a banana flowed back all the way down to the farmer uh, in a way that ensured a sustainable livelihood. Mm. So very consistent with the philosophy of Etsy, uh, but what we're trying to do, obviously, is um, impact um, you know, a much bigger set of uh, companies and, 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 and consumers and, and farmers around the world. All right, well, we're going to continue our conversation with Paul, but first... Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Why don't we? Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days, and it's no doubt causing some anxiety among some of our fellow fools. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that, and they're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. And then once you're verified, you're going to qualify for their all new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And now, here's the best part if rates go up, your rate stays the same for those 90 days. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. So, either way, Sounds to me like you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. That's right, rocketmortgage.com fool. All right, Paul. Well, thank you. So you've you've definitely helped us start to see the world with new eyes. Um, Marcel Proust was credited with his line, although it turns out he never actually wrote it. The great French writer of the 19th century, but Proust was said to have said, "The only real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in seeing with new eyes." And that's the way I feel like that's that's what you did for me a month ago, and I think you're doing that for our listeners here. This week, and thank you for that. I wanted to move from looking at the world now, and let's navel gaze just a little bit. I'm curious about your organization, Fair Trade USA. So you are a not-for-profit. Do you have a? I assume you have a pretty darn big budget these days, and it's a big 20-year growth story. And you're overseeing that. I mean, what do the numbers look like of your operation? And describe some about the organization you've been building. Well, thanks for asking, David. Yes, we in fact are turning 20 this year, which is just crazy to me. You know, as founder, I never thought that I would stay this long. I thought I would, you know, start Fair Trade USA and then move back to Nicaragua to keep working with farmers, because that's always been my passion. Uh, but I have to say, you know, this has been such an, uh, an incredible journey over the last two decades, because each year, it seems like new companies in new product categories are coming to us and saying, Oh wow, that fair trade thing that you developed for coffee, can you apply that to the, you know, fill in the blank industry? And so every year, my, um, you know, entrepreneurial energy and that of my team has been engaged to figure out how to continually adapt and evolve the fair trade model to make it relevant for everything from, uh, coffee and tea to sugar and rice and fresh produce and fish and, and now, uh, apparel and home goods. Uh, and so that's been a very exciting uh, journey for me, as you can imagine. And, and what we're finding 
is that um, our model has relevance across all of these product categories. Um, changes need to be made. Adaptations need to be made. So um, here's where we are 20 years in with, uh, with, uh, with the numbers. As you pointed out, Fairtrade USA is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our role is not to buy and sell fair trade products, but rather to certify products. So we develop the standard for fair trade, and then we run the audit and certification of those uh-huh. products around the world, uh, serving uh, 1,300 brands and retailers, um, serving uh, over a million farmers and workers around the world uh, across all of these different product categories. So we're actually... Um, the mighty mouse that roared. Uh, we're a small organization with a budget of $20 million this year and a staff of about 120 people. Most of right. us are based here in Oakland, California. We also have teams in uh, India and Costa Rica and um, Western Africa and other places around the world where, where we work. Um, but what we've managed to do is create tremendous leverage through our certification service. <laughs> so, so while we are a small organization, um, uh, uh, we are able to catalyze this much bigger marketplace, which this year will reach over $7 billion in sales at retail with our, our fair trade certified label on mm. it. We own the fair trade certified label. So when you, uh, look uh, for coffee or bananas or, or tea or chocolate, and you see that fair trade certified label on the package, that's your assurance as a consumer that farmers uh, produced in a sustainable and responsible way and got a little bit of extra money to invest in their families and their communities. Consumer behavior lies at the heart of our model. Uh, there's no government regulation forcing companies to do fair trade. Uh, you know, really, fair trade works for companies only if consumers buy it. And so consumer activation is um, something that we think a lot about and work on. And uh, I'm really uh, proud to report that 67% of American consumers now recognize that fair trade certified label. Uh, about 20% of American consumers are now buying fair trade products on a, on a regular or occasional basis. Uh, that's about 40 million people and growing. Uh, we're doing some research now with Harvard University around consumer trends and consumer behavior. One of the things that we're learning is that the conscious consumer is willing to pay a little bit more money. Uh, not a lot more money, but a 5% premium on a cup of coffee or uh, another high-quality product that also delivers this feel-good factor, if you will, uh, around the sustainability and the responsibility of the product. Uh, is something that consumers will bear. And this kind of information is, is really important, as you might guess, for our retail partners because retail you know, is so competitive right now. Uh, but we've seen Kroger, for example, launch a major line of uh, fair trade products in the last couple of years, a Target, a Safeway, uh, Walmart, Sam's Club, Costco, mm. not just Whole Foods, but all these other mainstream retailers are launching and growing their fair trade programs and this, in turn, is allowing us to reach millions of consumers. Uh, and I'll just give you one more data point. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the um, uh, commitment of, the, of, of buyers, of, of brands and retailers, is that they will pay a small premium back to the farmer or the worker. Uh, and that's a requirement of fair trade. We audit that. We audit how the farmers and workers use that money uh, so that, you know, we're ensured that they're investing it in, uh, in, you know, in sustainable community development projects. And we track that. We track it on a quarterly basis through our audit system. 
So here's the punchline. On a cumulative basis, since we started, Fairtrade USA and its partners have generated over $550 million in fair trade premiums back to the farmers and the communities uh, that we serve. Wow. And, and, and that's, that's been made possible on, a, on, on, a, on, on a, um, a cumulative budget of about $125 million. So mm-hmm. in other words, what we think of as our social return on investment, that is, for every dollar that we're investing as an organization or spending in growing the fair trade market and the fair trade movement, what is the impact that we're able to generate, right? For every dollar that we spend, how many, how many dollars can we create for farmers and workers? That ratio now is four to one, cumulatively over 20 years. For every dollar we invest in the market, we're able to generate four dollars in new wealth for poor families and workers uh, around the world. And that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, I, I love the work that our peer groups are doing, our peer organizations uh, that are out there. But in the international development field, there aren't too many organizations that have such an incredible uh, leverage and uh, amplified impact yeah. uh, on, the, on the money that they're spending on international development. So we're proud, but we're also humble because fair trade in the big picture is still small. And so uh, one last number that I'll share with you, we believe that fair trade now is reaching an inflection point based on the rising tide of conscious capitalism, conscious consumerism, impact sourcing. So we actually believe that the next few years are going to be uh, a time of extraordinary growth for fair trade and, and, and the things that we, um, that we certify. And so we're projecting um, uh, triple uh, our current volume, triple our current impact within the next three years. Mm, that and so is it, spectacular. this year, this year we'll generate about $80 million in, uh, in, in above market pricing and premiums for farmers. We want to get to $250 million in the next few years. And we think that's possible. That is called punching above your weight class. And that is a remarkable, well, it's not just a story of the next three years because it's what you've been doing for 20, Paul. And it reminds me, by the way, that, and I'm totally bought into Pablo the farmer. I know it is all real and very genuine and authentic. But I also want to mention that you have an MBA from Cal Berkeley. And you went to Yale as an undergrad, so you're coming from a pretty intellectually um, impressive background. And I'm actually very briefly curious about your time at Haas School for Business at Cal Berkeley. My son was an undergrad at Berkeley, enjoyed his time there. Um, did Did you feel like you needed to get an MBA at that point in your life, and are you glad you did? Oh, absolutely. You know, I had. Um I had been away for 11 years, so uh, straight out of uh, Yale, I uh, in the summer of '83, I, I flew down to Nicaragua and ended up, you know, not staying for a year or two, which was my original plan. I stayed for uh, over a decade, <laughs> and so when I came back, I came back with the dream of starting Fair Trade USA. At that point, Fair Trade was big in Europe. It's been big in Europe for many, many decades. Don't ask me why, but no one had ever started anything like Fair Trade USA here in the U.S. And because I'd been working with fair trade farmers in, in Nicaragua, selling to buyers in Europe, I, I, I got a glimpse of the model. And so I didn't invent the idea of fair trade, but I had the dream of bringing it to the U.S., of bringing that European model to the U.S., mm. and obviously adapting it to a very different market and, and, and industry um, and consumer base here. And so I moved back in 1994 to do that, but I, you know, Honestly, David, I barely spoke English at that point. I mean, I've been way out in the bush for 11 years. 
Uh, my hillbilly Spanish is great, but my English, and certainly my business English wasn't so great. And um, on a more serious note, you know, I just knew that if I was going to start something like Fair Trade USA that lives in the world of business, uh, I needed to uh, get more tools and learn the language of business and, 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 and try and understand how fair trade could solve problems for business. I knew how it could solve problems for farmers. I knew how fair trade could work for farmers. But I also knew that if I wanted to go from a redistributive mentality to a shared value mentality and, to, uh, and, and if I wanted to make fair trade something that created shareholder value and stakeholder value, then I really needed to have more business sense mm. and, and more business preparation. And so, you know, I, I applied to several schools, but Cal Berkeley was the best fit. Um, you know, mid-90s, uh, internet boom, a lot of entrepreneurial energy uh, at Cal Berkeley, um, and, uh, and, and at the same time, uh, kind of a strong um, uh, inclination towards uh, social entrepreneurship. And so it was just a great home uh, for me, uh, 94 to 96, getting the MBA. I wrote the, the, uh, the business plan, the first business plan for uh, Fair Trade USA. I, I wrote in, in my uh, second year entrepreneurship That's class great. at Cal Berkeley. So, Love it. you know, that, that, I, that, that, not just the credential, but more importantly, the tools that I got as an MBA uh, have, have definitely made me a more effective social entrepreneur. Uh, and Cal was just a great place to get it. Well, and I know they're proud to have you, and that's a great story. Um, all right, just a few stingers to end here. Just quick questions off the top of my head, largely, but love to hear anything you have for us, Paul. Uh, of my three closing questions, how about this one? How do you invest personally? We love the stock market at The Motley Fool. We believe in patient, long-term investing directly into stocks. Have you ever bought a stock directly? What do you think about investing? <laughs> Man, you know, you you can uh you can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy. I was uh, you know, I was born and raised in Texas and then I went off to Nicaragua for 11 years. So, you know, picking stock is not my strength. Uh honestly, um as a as a lifelong uh um, you know, nonprofit guy, uh, don't have a lot of extra extra money socked away, and what I what I do, I put it into Bay Area real estate, which has turned out real fine for me. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a great place to be invested with real estate. So, congratulations. Um, well, Thanksgiving is this week, Paul. How do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Oh, uh, with my family. I am blessed to have my 94 year old mama still with us, and she lives here in the Bay Area. Uh, I have two older sisters and a, and a younger sister, and we're all going to be together on Thanksgiving. Both of my kids have come home for Thanksgiving, so uh, you know, I'll just be surrounded by, by those that uh, I love and cherish. And, and, and you know, I just feel like I have so much to feel thankful for, not only in my family and my life, but in, um, you know, in this calling uh, of fair trade and, and having found something that um, you know, gives me a sense of purpose and gives me a sense that every day that I come to work, I can I can do my part to to help make the world better. You bet. And I'm picturing at least a couple of fair trade products probably on the table or surrounding you during that Thanksgiving celebration. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one, Paul Rice. How about advice to entrepreneurs? We have a lot of them listening. A lot of them are smaller entrepreneurs just starting, and others, no doubt, are bigger than The Motley Fool. So, we have a wonderful clientele that loves creating great stuff. Advice for entrepreneurs? David, I love that question. I love that question, because I meet so many 
uh, entrepreneurs and business people and MBA students in my travels, in, in my business meetings, and, and in my public speaking. And I really feel like the business community right now is um, going through a transition. And sometimes for those of us who are impatient for a better world, it, it feels like a painfully slow transition. But if you take a step back and look at the trajectory of capitalism over the last 50 years, and then you think about where it could be 50 years from now, there's a lot of reason for hope, mm. a lot of reason for belief that we are in kind of the dawning of a whole new chapter in capitalism, a whole new era that some are calling conscious capitalism, uh, an era where the, the, the job of business is not just to make profits for, for shareholders, but also to create value for stakeholders, mm. uh, to create uh, a more um, uh, environmentally sustainable and socially responsible world. And consumers are stepping up and supporting the business community in that quest, and they're helping business leaders overcome this trade-off mentality that, um, that characterizes the last chapter of capitalism, the one that we're evolving out of. Mm. This trade-off mentality, this notion that either you can be profitable or you can be sustainable, but you can't do both. And that if you try to pursue sustainability, if you try to pursue fair trade or, or social responsibility, it's going to come at the expense of your shareholders, and you have no right to do that. So just don't do it. That, that, that crusty old mentality of the past is quickly giving way to the notion that, no, actually, responsibility and sustainability can drive long-term shareholder value, can drive value for stakeholders, and consumers are increasingly expecting that and rewarding companies who meet that. And so my advice, in answer to your question, my advice to entrepreneurs is write the chapter. Don't wait for the chapter to happen to you, this new chapter in capitalism, the conscious capitalism chapter. Don't wait for it to happen. Help make it so. Write it yourself. Make it your approach to business. Make it your approach, whether you're starting a new business or in you know, the belly of the beast, as it were, in some, big, um, in some big corporation. Help those companies find ways to create shared value, to create social and economic and environmental value all at the same mm. time. I, 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 I absolutely believe that in our lifetime, we're going to see this shift. And and to the extent that entrepreneurs are out there creating companies uh, with this mentality, I think we'll accelerate the process and, 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 and hopefully not totally screw up the planet before our kids inherit it. Mm. That is a world that I vote for, and that is a world that Paul Rice, for the last couple of decades, has been helping to create. And I feel a great sense of promise after this conversation with you, Paul, and I know Millions of Motley Fool members who come to our site and look for a better world and try to invest in that world are going to enjoy this conversation. So, thank you very much for your time, and happy Thanksgiving. Oh, David, thank you so much. It's been a real honor and pleasure to be on, on the program with you today, and I appreciate everything you're doing, and I wish you and all the listeners a, a very happy Thanksgiving as well. Well, thanks again to Paul for being so generous with his time. You know, some people I would never let occupy a 55-minute or so interview on this podcast, but Paul, I definitely could have spent another hour with him, and I sure hope I'll get that chance sometime in future. It was a delight to share our conversation with you. Well, next week on Rule Breaker Investing, it is, of course, time for our mailbag. So, it's the final Wednesday of the month. So, at some point 
after you've enjoyed your turkey, if you're a U.S. citizen and have celebrated Thanksgiving, maybe you have a quiet Friday. Well, some people are shopping. They call it Black Friday here in the U.S., but you don't have to shop necessarily. It was all day Friday. Or maybe you find a quiet moment on Saturday and think about this podcast. Or maybe last week's when I gave you a five-stock sampler. Or the start of this month where we got started investing with my talented contributors, part two of two. Think back through our month, and if you have a question comment or a story to tell, drop us an email, rbi at fool.com. That's always our email address. For mailbag, you can also tweet us. Twitter, we're, of course, at RBI Podcast. So, I look forward to sharing next week with you the best of what we come across for our mailbag. And then I do want to highlight the first podcast kicking off December because it's my annual holiday games list. So, longtime listeners know that I, David Gardner, love a few things more than the stock market and business. One of them is just games, specifically board games and card games. So, we'll be going through some of my holiday favorites. If you're looking for an extra gift to put under somebody's tree or to light up someone's holidays, I'll try to deliver that. And as part of that podcast, I want to highlight that I have one of the world's great game designers joining me for that conversation, Richard Garfield, who invented Magic the Gathering and collectible card games. He has a few new games coming out this time of year, but he's one of truly the most innovative, brilliant game designers of our time. And I'm really psyched that Richard has said yes. He'll come on to Rule Breaker Investing and talk games with me. So that'll kick off the first week of December. In the meantime, Stay foolish out there. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.